Welcome back to the Sports Media Watch podcast. This is John Lewis, joined as always by Drew Lerner. We hope you enjoyed your Thanksgiving weekend. Time to get right back into the discussion of sports media topics. If you have not already, please subscribe to the SMW podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. We do have a guest today. Brian Curtis of The Ringer joins us for a nice long conversation. Uh, Drew and I spoke with him. In fact, we just finished our conversation with him as we're taping this intro. Uh, but before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about the TV ratings from Thanksgiving weekend, specifically the National Football League and the Cowboys and Commanders. 41.8 million viewers for Dallas's 35-point blowout of mediocre Washington. Uh, this is everything you need to know about the NFL's power. 41.8 million viewers, bigger than Game 7 of the 2016 World Series, bigger than any NFL game ever in the regular season, except for one, New York against Dallas on Thanksgiving last year. But let's be completely transparent here about the fact that out-of-home viewing is solely responsible for that great number. Solely responsible. Out-of-home viewing contributed 41% of that audience. The out-of-home audience was over 17 million viewers. That is an unbelievable number. That is bigger than any World Series or NBA Finals game, period, uh, since 2020. The out-of-home audience was 17.3 million. You take that out, and Cowboys Commanders had 24.5 million viewers, which is actually the lowest for any Cowboys game on Thanksgiving in the pre-out-of-home era since 2008. So what do we make of these ratings? Are they actually meaningful? That's a really good question. I mean, obviously, these are the accurate numbers. This is not inflation. This is not Barry Bonds. The reality is, this is what the number, I mean, the numbers are probably still being undercounted. So even at 41.8 million, I'm pretty confident this is an undercount. It's probably bigger than 41.8 million. But what we can say about the previous 30 odd years of sports television ratings is that that was the dead ball era, right? That was an era where the numbers were undercounted. And what we thought was great really wasn't great because you were probably missing out on upwards of tens of millions of viewers. And if you look back at, say, you know, Dallas versus Miami in the Leon Lett game in 1993, that was 38 million viewers. Realistically, you're probably talking about over 50 million, especially given the uh, lack of competition from, you know, the other networks at that time, and certainly from TikTok and all the other uh, ways we have to entertain ourselves now. So it's not that these numbers are inflated. These are legit numbers. This isn't made up. I mean, all Nielsen numbers are to some extent. I mean, it's all sample data, so it's not made up. But there is certainly a level of fudging involved that, that people don't like to admit. But the reality is that when we talk about these numbers, when we talk about 41.8 million, that's a real number, but the comparison is inflated. The comparison is off. And uh, I, I think... Obviously, yes, it was the second most watched NFL regular season game on record behind last year. Neither of those two games are the most watched NFL game of the, of the Nielsen era. There are 30 years of NFL games, and in the course of, from the pre-out-of-home era, right, uh, from, from the start of Nielsen people meters in 88 or 89 until 2020, so that's a solid three decades there's all of those numbers were undercounted, all of them. And yeah, there's no way that 
that was the second most watched NFL regular season game on record. Yeah. Um, what this tells me, John, is that if if we're going to be comparing to the pre-out-of-home era, I, th- I think really the only metric we should be looking at is the household rating. It sh- it, the viewership number should not matter. I mean, it's nice that we have more accurate figures now. And like you said, you're right. It's probably still being undercounted to an extent. Um, although, obviously, out-of-home is very good at accounting for kind of viewership anomalies like a Thanksgiving Day game or a Christmas Day game or the Super Bowl when there's a lot of out-of-home viewing. But I think you had the numbers on your site. Let me pull them up here. With the household rating comparison for this Cowboys game versus a game from 2016, why don't you lead us through that? Well, this game had an 11.9 rating. So 41 million viewers and an 11.9 rating. That's kind of crazy because even on Thanksgiving, an 11 rating wasn't getting you 30 million before out of home, much less 40. Uh, But that 11.9 rating is the lowest for a Cowboys game on Thanksgiving since 2017, Cowboys and and Chargers. So the household rating tells the story. This is the most watched or the second most watched NFL regular season game on record and also the lowest rated Cowboys game on Thanksgiving in six years, right? That tells you that what out of home is doing is taking numbers that probably would rank on the low end of what we are used to from the NFL on Thanksgiving Day and turning them into record numbers. Not every day of out of home is going to do that, just Thanksgiving and Christmas and even Easter to an extent. So so let's take uh, out of home to its you know practical application. Um, and we get into this a little bit with Brian in our interview later. So now that the numbers are being more accurately counted and, you know, generally speaking, are getting about a 10% bump for most sporting events, obviously these Thanksgiving Day games and and events of that sort get a higher out-of-home bump. Is this translating to better ad rates for the networks or anything of that sort? Um, are, are Are they able to leverage this at all? So that's kind of what Brian Curtis was getting at later on, and you can skip ahead or or wait till we get to the interview. You know, what do these numbers really mean? How do they really impact anything? Um, And the reality of the matter is, I really don't know what the difference is between that game getting 41 million viewers and it getting 35. 35 million viewers is a huge number. No no advertiser is going to say, well, we wanted 41 million, so eh, let's not spend any money. It's all about, it's all about the vanity. It's all about the press release. It's all about the trend piece about the NFL's popularity. And that would all be well and good if any of it was really true. But because of -of out-of-home viewing, at least for this Thanksgiving slate, it's not. Now, if you wanted to say, wow, this game nearly matched last year, despite being a 35-point blowout and featuring a Washington team that nobody cares about, the reality is that that is a notable fact, that that game nearly matched last year. But then the other thing, too, that I don't think anyone's really talking about, I mean, I mentioned Ethan Strauss in the uh, interview with with Curtis. I'm going to mention him again here. Um, He has wondered aloud whether or not Nielsen keeps adding viewership to the out-of-home total, which is to say there was no real reason why Cowboys commanders should have had a larger out-of-home audience than Giants Cowboys did last year. That's weird. It's weird. Yep. 
Is the out-of-home audience just going to keep growing as Nielsen perfects its measurements? And in, in, in that case, are comparisons even to the first few years of out-of-home legitimate, right? I mean, that's kind of where you start to wonder. But there's always been this kind of stuff with Nielsen. You know, there's always been these kinds of methodological changes that affect the numbers. And the numbers are, as we all know, they are another way of measuring value, right? These ratings are down because Colin Kaepernick took a knee. Or these ratings are down because LeBron James said this and that about Trump and police. And that's why the ratings are down. Ratings are used to determine. I'm not just, just going to put it on the outkick brigade. I'll also say we do that in, to the other extent. These ratings for the WNBA and NWSL are up, and that means this country is turning it around. We are fully invested in women's sports now. Look, there are increases and declines that happen just because Nielsen did something differently. And that, that needs to, we cannot go with the assumption that every increase in ratings or viewer, well, certainly every increase in viewership, we can't go with the assumption that every increase or decline in viewership is a measure of people's attitudes because it might just be a methodological change. Yeah. Just like with, you know, political polling and people's, or the general public's understanding of it as a science, Nielsen in a way is very similar because they're using, you know, population samples, right? Um, a little differently than how you obtain a political poll, but the point still stands, right? People's understanding of the context surrounding in this case, viewership, the viewership measurement industry is very lacking, right? It's not like Nielsen's very transparent with the public to begin with, but to have someone actually understand how they apply their methodology, how they tweak it, and that can affect the numbers uh, is really like, that, that's totally lacking in the same way that people really do not understand political polling or opinion polling. But the numbers, like you said, are always used to push a narrative one way or the other, right? So at the end of the day, this is kind of just a lack of, um, you know, lack of understanding on a, on a broad basis. The reality of the matter is most people probably think Nielsen has a ship in the TV. But I do think that for me, just from the standpoint of why would Commander's Cowboys do better in out of home than last year? Maybe out-of-home viewing is continuing to recover from COVID, but I'm pretty sure it recovered last year fully. So what, people went out? Was it warmer? It was pretty warm over Thanksgiving, but it's Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving could be 80 degrees outside. People are still going to be inside their homes having their big dinners and all that. So that makes me suspicious. Well, I wouldn't say suspicious, but it makes me think that something else is at play that's methodological in nature. Well, you have to think of the incentives, right, of Nielsen, right? They are incentivized in many ways to to change their methodology that to capture a higher viewership, right? Because at the end of the day, these networks, it, they're getting paid directly on the basis of how many people are watching, right? So Nielsen has every motivation in the world to capture as much viewership as possible. And where I was going to tie this back to political polling is that you can you could tell from 2016 to 2018 to 2020 to 2022, many pollsters themselves actually changed their methodologies to try to capture 
populations that they thought were lacking, or they at least changed their weighting and how they um, weighted their polls after capturing their sample to, you know, indicate that, all right, in the past, historically, we have failed to capture this X group of people. So we might weight them in different ways to get our desired more accurate results, at least results we're thinking are more accurate. So Nielsen, in very much the same way, is getting more accurate results. But at the end of the day, they're also incentivized to get those more accurate results because it's raising the overall viewership numbers. But you have to keep in mind the advertisers. I mean, advertisers pay Nielsen too, right? I mean, they not, they're not paying what the networks are paying, obviously, but advertisers are clients just like the networks are. And advertisers are going to be very much you know, in trouble if Nielsen is putting out viewership that is dramatically higher than it should be. Now, of course, that's not what's happening. Nielsen is simply finding a way to more accurately measure what's out there. But if I'm an advertiser, I can tell you right now, Commander's Cowboys definitely had fewer viewers in reality, in the actual world, than Bill's Cowboys did in 2019. Bill's Cowboys in 2019 before Out of Home was 32 million viewers. Commander's Cowboys is 41 million. Commander's Cowboys is an 11.9 household rating. Bill's Cowboys was a 13.5. Now, that difference alone tells me, based on the fact that you have so many different people in these homes, and the irony of out-of-home viewing is, on Thanksgiving, a lot of that out-of-home viewing is in homes, right? So you have a lot of people who are out of the home but in a home. And if you have a 13.5 in 2019, that's going to equal more actual viewers, not Nielsen measured, but just who was actually watching than, 20, than in 11.9 in, in 2023. So, you know, population growth has not been sufficient over that time to, to account for why you would get that, that kind of a number. If I'm an advertiser and I know Commander's Cowboys, um, you know, had fewer viewers in reality than Bill's Cowboys did in 2019, why am I paying more now? Now, of course, there's a good reason why you're paying more now, which is because ultimately the NFL is doing better relative to the rest of TV than it was back then. But if you're just basing it strictly on the viewership, you're, it doesn't matter if Nielsen says 9 million more people were watching. There were definitely fewer people watching that game than in 2019. So if you're an advertiser, that doesn't necessarily do you any good. All right. That was a... Pretty wonky discussion there, but I think uh, our listeners will appreciate that. Let's transition to the Black Friday game. Um, this is obviously the first time the NFL has placed a game on Black Friday. They did it on Amazon Prime. Uh, you know, there's the obvious synergies there, of course, Black Friday shopping and Amazon being the go-to place to do any holiday shopping for many people. Um, that game... I don't want to say maybe underwhelming because we don't have anything to go off of here, but um, it averaged 9.61 million viewers. It uh, was one of the lower single window viewerships that the NFL has had this year. Um, personally, I, you know, I, I found it to be a bit low. I thought it would be a, a bit higher than this, but I, I also think it'll probably trend in a similar way to Thursday Night Football this year when people know about it. They're more familiar with the concept of it. More people will tune in next year. What do you think? Well, I agree with you that I would have expected more viewers. I predicted in my rating prediction article about 14 million, just because even though 
There were obvious reasons to expect the numbers to be lower. The Jets are terrible. Sick and tired of the Jets. No one wants to see this team, right? Nobody cares that Mike Greenberg is a fan. You know, this team hasn't been relevant since Joe Namath. The Brady Bunch was in its first season when Joe Namath won that Super Bowl. So the Jets, we don't want to see the Jets. The Dolphins are very good, but we knew they were going to beat the Jets up. Dolphins, Jets, bad matchup. Three o'clock time slot. We know the NFL thrives at four o'clock, but three o'clock on a Friday just doesn't seem right. Even though four o'clock on the Thursday and one o'clock on the Thursday were great. Three o'clock on a Friday, something about it's just off. So Jimmy Trina of Sports Illustrated has actually been pushing for this Black Friday game for a while. And he had the idea that this should be a London series game. Um, one that was played in a morning time slot in the United States. Uh, part of me wonders, especially considering the tradition of, you know, Black Friday shopping is typically done in the morning or, you know, sometimes very early in the morning or even the previous night. I don't know how many people actually go out and do that anymore, but, you know, there's something there with that. People might want to wake up and, you know, throw a football game on. I'm wondering if that would get uh, a higher viewership than three, which kind of seems to be in, in a bit no man's land. Yeah, mm, that's tough. I mean, that's a, I mean, a London game is a London game is a London game. And the best you're going to get is that same re viewership range of nine million. So why why change it? You're not going to get more viewers. Um, to me, it just comes down to, it's a lot to ask. It's a lot to ask. You asked me to watch nine hours of football on Thursday and then three more hours on Friday, leading into the biggest weekend of college football all season and then a full Sunday and Monday. You know, you know, remember that Mark Cuban quote about, uh, you know, uh, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered in regards to the NFL? Well, that's never going to happen. The NFL will, you know, the heat death of the universe, the NFL will still be getting big ratings that day. But the reality is that you can overdo it on a small scale. You, the NFL is not going to go out of business or, or suddenly the ratings are going to collapse. But I think that Black Friday game coming after nine straight hours of football, that's a lot to ask. And the NFL, the, you know, the NFL, even with as big an audience as the NFL gets, there's a lot of people in this country who don't watch every game. And I think a lot of people said, you know what? Mm, I don't need to see this. Especially if I have to go and click on the Amazon Prime app and load it up. I mean, it's not as simple as just turning on a broadcast TV game. Uh, it, I think with Thursday Night Football, you have two days of that football. You're kind of ready for something. Amazon Prime, you had what, two hours of that football on, on, on Black Friday? So, and the other thing too, Black Friday, it's not a family day. Thanksgiving is a tradition. You can turn on the Cheers Thanksgiving episode, the classic episode where it all ends in a, a food fight. What are they doing during the day? They're watching football, right? Because it's been a tradition for years and years and years. You can't just create something and say, this is a tradition now. You know, I mean, it's a little bit like the NBA in-season tournament, although that's doing okay. You can't just create a tradition out of nothing, at least not immediately. It'll take a while. So the one other thing I wanted to touch on regarding the Black Friday game, um, we've seen this slow creep from the NFL onto days in which it has not traditionally played. Uh, Christmas Day, Black Friday. Is there any more real estate for the NFL to take up um, after Black Friday? Like, what, what else is out there? 
I can't think of anything. No one's going to say, hey, the Columbus Day game. And that's a Monday anyway. You got Monday Night Football. Um, you know, I mean. Boxing I, Day, like day no, after Christmas. That's not going to. No. I mean, Election Day, but they'd be crazy to do it. That wouldn't work out too well. Uh, you know, look, I think I think Black Friday is about it. The only other thing is Labor Day. And that would mm. require them to start the season earlier. And they they did the Labor Day start and they thought it was bad for ratings. And so they stopped, um, you know, way back in like 2000, I think was the last time they started over Labor Day weekend. But that would be the only other thing um, short of them extending the season further into the the, the spring. I, I can't see them having any. I mean, they already took Martin Luther King Day for the NBA. I mean, who, who would have ever thought? So, yeah, uh, they've exhausted it. All right. Well, I think it's about time for our third straight guest to join us today. It is Brian Curtis of The Ringer. We have a long conversation with him about a lot of sports media topics, and we start with the situation at Sports Illustrated. Uh, so, uh, Brian, very happy to have you joining us here. And of course, you do your own podcast. I'll, I'll give you a moment here just to tell us a little bit about it, the podcast you do uh, every week uh, on The Ringer, The Press Box. First of all, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, the Press Box. It's twice a week. We do sports media stories, and then we also allow ourselves to drift into the rest of the media, whether that's politics, whether that's whatever Elon Musk has done in the last 24 hours. Turns out there are always a huge number of things to talk about. We just try to squeeze them all into one pot. All right. And that's always uh, one to listen to, the Press Box. And uh, we are happy to have you here to talk about everything that's been going on in the industry lately. I want to start with the Sports Illustrated AI story. So just for some quick background for anyone who's not familiar, uh, there was a report in Futurism Monday that Sports Illustrated has not only been using AI-generated content, which is becoming more and more common, but that they actually created fake names and backgrounds and pictures for their fabricated writers. So that's obviously something that goes a little bit beyond the typical data scribe stuff that we see everywhere, including ESPN.com. Uh, Brian, your thoughts about what this means for Sports Illustrated as a brand and the industry going forward? Well, I think several of us were very concerned uh, years ago when Sports Illustrated charted this new path because it seemed like they were going to be a content mill. You were going to have a core of what was fairly close to old Sports Illustrated, and then you were going to have this giant network of stuff. I think most of us thought that the stuff was going to be written by humans rather than the stuff being AI. So that is probably an escalation in what our worst fears of what Sports Illustrated would become. Um, that's just like, it's a different level. But, you know, when I look at this, I want to go back to the statement the Arena Group made, the latest statement, because they did not respond to the initial article in Futurism that you referred to. And what they said was, oh, you know, this was not Sports Illustrated publishing this stuff. This was a third party that we had contracted to publish articles. And their standards turned out to be different than what we thought they were. Just think about that for a second. We went to a third party to publish things on our website. I mean, already you've gotten so far away, not only from the glory days of Sports Illustrated, which we love to hold up at times like this, right? Oh, wasn't it great when... John Updike was writing for the magazine. No, no, we've just gotten away from the standards of a publication where you're out, not outsourcing your pages, your digital pages to some third party. 
I mean, that to, that to me already is crazy. And then you have it that it turns out to be people that don't exist, pictures that are pulled from, you know, generic person, <laughs> generic sports writer pictures. And it's just an absolute catastrophe. Do you 100% buy that explanation, by the way, that it's all out of their hands? Um, I think you're I think you're responsible for what goes on your website. So even if you take it at face value, I don't put much stock into it. I mean, this is what they wanted to do, right? I mean, it's like saying, oh, you know, we we have some uh, blogger on Sports Illustrated who we don't much look at, and they wrote something we don't agree with. Well, this is the way you crafted the site. This is the way you wanted your media company, uh, you know, to 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 be formed. So that's that. You talked about the content mill aspect. I mean, the reality is a lot of websites now, and Sports Illustrated is a it's just a website, right? It has that SI brand, but it's just a, it's just a blog yeah. like the other at this point. The, the, the strategy now is to flood the zone with content. If you ever see every week CBS has how to watch every single game in college football, every site has this. There's yeah. no way that you can get good traffic off of any one of these. But if you have one for every single game, they all add up. And if robots are creating them, well, then I guess it works out financially, even if not reputationally. Uh, well, I always wonder what the end game of that is. What, what's going to be the, what's the long-term goal of that? You know, we will sort of trick people into reading our stuff or have you just like fall into our website from a Google search where you want to, what time do the Cowboys play today? Like what, what long-term is going to come of that? Is it just going to do that forever? That's going to be what the site is. You're going to justify it by saying, oh, we do all this stuff, but then there's some good stuff over on this side. I just, I just think at some level that is a false choice. And just the reason that everybody's doing it, that doesn't really hold a lot of water for me. No, you're right. And the reality is that it's not a good long-term strategy. And again, how to watch, there's so many of them that none of them are going to get much in terms of traffic. So the only way to do it is to just really flood the zone with every single game. And again, what is the value of that for readers? You know, that's exactly what I think, you know, when um, I can't remember which website it was, was it the uh, Gizmodo or one of those had that recent controversy with AI doing a Star Wars list and the movies were out of order. And it said this is the order they took place in, in the Star Wars universe. And I just thought, what is the best case scenario here? You have a Star Wars list <laughs> like that. That's what, like a Star Wars list is the most generic content item I can possibly think of on the Internet. <laughs> so, again, just like what's the best case scenario here? You have a generic version of something that someone can get anywhere else. You know, I've, I've seen a lot in the media about kind of glorifying Sports Illustrated um, as a bit of a legacy, um, you know, sports media publication. I think for me as someone, you know, who I guess came of age at a different time, uh, not to, you know, be too blunt about it, but, you know, I'm a bit younger. Uh, for me, Sports Illustrated is a publication that I most associate with, like, an annual edition where they, you know, put scantily clad women on their cover, right? Like this is not a, you know, some some sort of beacon of of sports media for me. Like it may be to some of you guys. So obfuscating the origins of an article, you know, to say like it was written by a person when in reality it was written by AI, that's totally unethical. But like this to me doesn't come totally out of left field. So I, I think that's a great point. First of all, we should note that the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue was a huge moneymaker for the magazine, even during the so-called golden age of Sports Illustrated. Something that 
it was maybe slightly embarrassing to some people inside that building, but they made a ton of money off it every year, so they did it. I'm I'm absolutely with you in that I'm against doing this golden age thing where whenever we have a great publication biting the dust or having some ethical controversy that we hold up the best version of that publication and say, can you believe the magazine of Dan Jenkins and Frank DeFord is doing this? Well, it wasn't that right before it. You're right, right? Like this isn't if, and in fact, this group had not bought Sports Illustrated when it did, it wasn't going to continue in the way it did in its glory days, of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. That, that was not happening. There was going to have to be a new vision of it. I thought the same thing when the New York Times sports section was in it, you know, and everybody's like, it's the site of, it's the sports page of Robert Lipsight. Well, you know, Bob hasn't written for the Times in 20 years regularly. So that's, that's not what it is anymore. So I do think there's some hard-headed thinking, but even if we accept that it's a new reality, it's not going to be what it was. This is a pretty grim outcome. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. I Genuinely, Brian, you'd probably know better than me um, as someone who's been, you know, observing the media for a while like when's the last time you've seen like a truly great piece of investigative journalism from sports illustrated specifically i know they have great writers there right now but i i you know most publications i can like think of a piece or two sports illustrated i can't really think of one that comes to mind there's not one at the just absolute top of my lips right now but i guarantee there has been one because there this is the thing is there are good writers at sports illustrated who are still doing articles we would think of as you know, being worthy of the brand and, and just being good, good articles to read. So I, I guarantee that's out there. And that that has been happening fairly regularly. It's just that they decided to attach all this other stuff. You know, you work for uh, obviously the ringer, which has been very successful and kind of occupies a space that maybe SI would have occupied in the past as being a, a, a place with a pretty decent reputation. There isn't any kind of you know, you don't have the AI generated content, things like that. It's all, you know, we know who the writers are and they are people who people want to read. Uh, obviously, the ringer's doing quite well, but realistically, how much longer, not the ringer specifically, I'm not going to have you talk about your, your company, but how much longer can that kind of content last? I mean, we all know the direction that all of this is heading in terms of journalism generally and online journalism specifically how much longer do you think this can all go i don't know you know and i don't have the the magic uh theory to 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 sort of do the countdown clock or to try to fix everything uh if i did i would share it as publicly as <laughs> as i possibly could because you know i want this whatever this is meaning let's say meaningful sports writing podcasting and everything else to last as long as it possibly can because I don't want to really contemplate a world without it. But what's everybody going to do? And how long can everybody keep scrounging along uh, like we've been doing? I don't know. I really don't know the answer to that. You know, newspapers are, you know, they were, they were, they were the place to go when I was a kid, right? I wanted, I grew up wanting to write for the Dallas Morning News. I didn't want to write for, you know, a website because that didn't exist. But you look at them now and you're like, boy, We've sort of figured out what what is the minimal thing we can do that still constitutes a working newspaper sports page. <laughs> minimal number of articles, minimal number, of, you know, minimal amount of coverage. A lot of people working very hard, but they just don't have the numbers and the resources they once did. How long is that going to last? I, I I wish I had a better answer for you, but I I'd, I'd say not that long. But on the other hand, people in the media are resourceful. Right. They figure things out, figured out podcasting. They figured out, you know, other ways to 
to get information out there. You look at something like Meadowlark and the way they've you know figured out, okay, we're going to do documentaries, we're going to do other things. So you know maybe there's a world out there where we sort of push this thing down the street as far as we can. And in the meantime, what are we going to see? Uh, kind of we, we talked about AI, haven't talked about clickbait. You know, haven't talked about, hey, this person on Twitter said something and now people are mad, you know, like, well, I mean, how, how how bad can things get in the meantime? Uh, <laughs> those are some uh, some pretty depressing genres of uh, sports writing there. You know, it's funny. There is a lot of that in the world, but there's also a lot of really good stuff in the world. I mean, I open up my inbox every morning when I'm kind of sleepy over a cup of coffee and I look at, there's this huge list of athletic articles that I'm probably not going to read over the course of the day, but that are all interesting and all written you know from a from a from a place where you're like i wanted to write something good today not like i wanted to trick you today so i would say that you know for somebody who's out there looking for stuff there's a ton of stuff right this the, you know that's that's not the problem the problem is that you know finding as you said earlier a sustainable path to to make sure we can keep doing it isn't the ringer or meadowlark or similar companies kind of the model right because i mean there's always going to be an audience for this type of content um you know it's not like the um only content people are wanting to consume is that lowest common denominator stuff there's always going to be uh, a thirst for some elevated content that you know places like the ringer or metal or provide um isn't it more of just a restructuring figuring out how to you know get you know those revenue streams into a different um sort of model than than with like a traditional legacy media company yeah i guess so i mean I, it's funny because i just think it's in such a state of flux this world we're in that it's very hard to to point at something and say okay that's it you know that that's what's going to carry us in 10 years from now and i i know that because 10 years ago i was working for espn mind-blowing as that is now and ESPN, you know, was near the top of the cable bundle. I believe, you guys correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it was around 2012, you know, when they were up over 100 million subscribers. And look what they were doing. We got Grantland, we got Nate Silver, you know, we we got all kinds of things going on here. We're we're being inventive with our website. We got long, we still got a magazine and these big long form articles coming out all the time. Clicked on ESPN.com and said in the mag, and there was this big, well-edited feature just waiting for you to read, right? Now that, that's not that long ago you know, that we had a whole sort of system of paying for stuff, which was, you know, the cable model. Uh, and now it's sort of crumbled away or a lot of it's crumbled away. So I, again, I don't know the answer to that. I would love to say that you know, we've all stumbled on something, but <laughs> give it five or 10 years and let's see if it's the same thing. Let's shift gears a little bit to the other big controversy. Drew and I covered this last week for about 30 minutes, much longer than we were anticipating. So we'll keep it relatively short. But the Carissa Thompson story, I was um, uh, on the side of being surprised by the volume of reaction. It didn't seem like something that justified quite the level of intensity and every single major sideline reporter weighing in all the way, yeah. you know, Lisa Salters, even Michelle Tafoya hasn't done it in a while. What were your thoughts about, uh, about that uh, story? Well, just to take that particular part of it, I thought that was maybe the most striking part of the reaction was to see other network sideline reporters weigh in in the way they did. I don't remember that happening in broadcasting. In, if we're talking about network broadcasting, people doing games, I don't remember that happening any time during my career to that volume. And we've seen things happen on television that were really bad, right? 
I don't remember other broadcasters getting on Twitter and saying, this is wrong. This doesn't have a place in our business in quite that way. Now, how do you read that? You know, there's a couple different things. I think, you know, you heard a lot of uh, sideline reporters stand up and say, you know, look, I do my job ethically and well. And what you're doing by, you know, throwing this confession out here is making it seem to people or maybe making it seem to people like we're, we, we do the same stuff. And we actually don't, right? We really do it. And then I think you look at Chris Thompson, too, coming from a place of having graduated, uh, so to speak, to hosting television shows, right? Not doing sidelines anymore. And there's a lot of people on sidelines saying, wait a second, you're coming from this place when we're still doing this and we are trying to go out and do a great job every, every Sunday. So to me, that was, you know, the intensity of the reaction. You know, you also had a lot of people talking, look, you know, women who are in this industry deal with a lot of stuff online and offline. And this isn't going to make it easier for any of us. You saw that reaction on Twitter too, but it was, it was a very interesting to me to see the, that intensity. I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, to that point, you know, few people in this industry, few women in this industry know the level of, you know, dealing with horrible stuff as to Carissa Thompson and her podcast co-host, Aaron Andrews. Yeah. They know it more than, than anybody. So I was, uh, yeah, I, I thought that was just a little bit, it seemed a little bit much. And maybe uh, my argument last week was that the anger is a bit misplaced because Carissa Thompson is not the person who created a circumstance where Lisa Salters, who is as accomplished as anybody in this industry, has to defend her job. You know, that's a problem that ultimately was created years and years ago when the sideline role was never, you know, taken all that seriously by a lot of folks. And maybe that problem hasn't gone away the way that people might have thought by now. I would like to separate those two things a little bit, though, because, you know, I would absolutely agree with you that it's producers who have made the sideline role what it is. It doesn't have to be that. It's television producers that will tell you to your face, this is person is one of the most important members of my team. And oh, by the way, we're going to let them talk for less than two minutes out of a three hour game. But I also think that even if that's a situation, it doesn't mean that you're going to go out and make up a sideline report as she initially said she did. Like those two things don't exactly follow in my mind, right? Like we can talk about the job. We can talk about the structural nature of the job, which I agree does not do a lot of the people who do it justice. Um, but at the same time, like you don't make stuff up. You just don't, uh, which is again, what she initially said, then she came back and said she'd chosen her words poorly. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, uh, I won't I won't defend her, you know, actually doing that. I will say what I'm also talking about, too, is not just you have two minutes to talk. I'm talking about if you go back into the 90s when they had Ahmad Rashad, who's a friend of Michael Jordan, doing the sideline reports for all of those Bulls finals. Aaron riding Dickerson. with him to the game. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's on the last dance, yeah. Yeah. To me, the sideline role is one that the people in the industry making the decisions haven't really taken seriously until recently, if at all, and certainly when Carissa was, was doing it, I don't get the sense. That was around the same time CBS got rid of sideline reporters entirely on the NFL, if you remember that. I don't really get the sense that anybody, at least in a position of power, was treating it with a lot of uh, uh, seriousness at that point. I've been in the truck when Aaron Andrews has done the Fox game, the premier Fox game, and Rinaldi too, uh, at the same time. What I'm always struck by is how much more she talks if you're sitting in the truck, because the whole game, she's sitting there talking to the truck about things she's seeing on the sidelines. Really interesting thing. This guy just limped off. There may be an injury here. 
this coordinator is having a really heated discussion with the head coach on the sideline. And so if you're watching Fox or watching television, all of a sudden, boom, you see this incredibly illuminating shot at home. And you're like, oh, wow, look at that. Look at that. Look at this thing that we're all going to turn to a meme on Twitter because it's interesting or funny or telling or it tells the story of the game. It's the sideline reporter a lot of the time who found that, who pointed the network cameras to that shot, but because they never saw it on television, we didn't give any credit for it. Yeah, that's an excellent point, of course. Uh, and the reality is it is a bit of a thankless job. It always has been. And uh, I guess that's part of the reason, as you mentioned, the graduation to the hosting role, which is a heck of a lot uh, held in higher regard in this industry, is uh, probably a, a, a genesis of a lot of it. Let's switch gears and talk a little bit about your favorite topic. I'm talking, of course, about television ratings. Yes. Uh, so uh, you have a very, uh, it, it's a, it's a, I guess, a recurring theme. Whenever we know <laughs> the ratings are going to be, we know the ratings are going to be bad. The matchup isn't great. And you will say on Twitter, the ratings for X, Y, or Z do not matter in your life. Um, will have no effect on your well, life. will have no effect on your life. Uh, why is it do you, that you think there is so much interest? And I can certainly attest to this, it being, of course, what I've been writing about primarily for the last 17 years, this interest in sports TV ratings. What do you think it's about? Because sports media writers have been telling readers that ratings are important. They've been presenting the numbers to readers as if they are telling on their own and important. That's why people think they're important. Why do people think box office numbers are important? Because every time you flip on any morning TV show on a Monday, they're going, oh, did you see what Wish made? Did you see Napoleon did 80 plus million internationally? A lot of those numbers don't affect your life. I'd argue it's slightly different in, in movies because at least that you know is indicative of whether the sequel gets made, maybe whether the director gets another project. But that's why, because people tell them they're important. Isn't it also like some insecurity and some validation, especially if you're, you know, a fan of a sport that's not the NFL. Let's say you're a fan yes. of Major League Soccer or the Premier League, right? Like, you know, having people validate that with actual data that, oh, this sport, in fact, is popular. People are watching. I, I think that's a big part of it, too, is it not? Scoreboard. Yeah. And we know, you know, what all those arguments are all hilarious, right? Because you just pick whatever number is most flattering to the sport you're trying to <laughs> you're trying to protect and you just ignore any ones that don't you know comply with the thesis i mean here, here's my actual thing of, and thank you by the way for calling it a theme on twitter instead of a bit on twitter which it probably actually is my thing is when you those numbers are presented without any context and i say present company very much excluded here because as we know there's a lot of people on twitter who just throw that stuff out there and there's a lot of media reporters for decades who just thrown those numbers out there. What was the one we saw from Thanksgiving? CBS, Cowboys, Commanders, 40 million uh, viewers. What was it? They called it the second most watched regular season game in NFL history. Did I get that right? Is that is that is that true? Or did we just start counting the number of people watching football games differently recently? Yeah. Is that a meaningful thing to put on a meaningful superlative to put on a game like that for anybody who's just a normal fan i would argue without tons of context it's not and and i and then the second thing i'd say is like so what's the difference for cbs or for anybody that game doing 40 plus million viewers versus it doing 35 million what changes how much less money do you make who makes the money 
Like any, like what is the, what are the long-term downstream effects? If, if somebody had answers to those specific questions, I'd read it. I don't think it's uninteresting. In fact, I'd be, I'd be very interested to read it, but rarely do they even ask the question. It's just a 40.1. Did you see that? Whoa, <laughs> crazy football. And the Cowboys are popular. Well, I already knew that. I didn't need that number to tell me that. So fun. So my argument is just that they're often used without context without the kind of things that would actually make them come alive. Well, the, the ironic thing is it actually probably matters more <laughs> when a network doesn't meet their numbers because then they have to do make goods, right? That's the only yeah. time I actually see them matter because these ads are sold long in advance of um, any ratings data coming out, right? That That's pretty, you know, <laughs> boring in the weeds stuff. Like that really doesn't affect the sports fan. Right, but it's only it's the only thing to me that would actually be interesting to talk about because there's just a number. It's like okay, well, I mean, what do I what do I get out of that? You know, it's like it's not. I don't. I just don't know what to do with it. And I think again, it's again with the very notable exceptions in this world, there are people who really you know dig into these things and write about them. A lot of it just becomes like, here's a number. Let me repeat what the network said in the press release. I can't remember. It was years ago. I can't remember. John May. I don't know if I talked to you about this or or I can't remember. Please tell me if I did. But there was a World Cup game that was shown on Spanish language American television. Can't believe remember if it was on Telemundo or Univizio, and it was billed in the press release as the highest rated, blah blah blah, in the history of Spanish language American television. And it turned out the game had lost its time slot to whatever the other Spanish language station was. So it was the highest rated this, but it had lost to a reality show on the other stations. It wasn't even the highest rated of the night. I mean, it's just one of those things where you're just like, this is hilarious, right? That the press release says X, but you could also just look at it and say, wait a second, it didn't even win the time slot? What? Anyway, that stuff amuses me. Well, I mean, I think when we talk about ratings, it is all relative. Um, you know, there are going to be a, a lot of these games that do well get press releases they might not win their time slot you know especially back in the day when you used to have uh the zombie show beating sunday night football uh most nights the walking right. dead uh so you know i would say you are correct of course that there's a lot of this that is just reporting press releases um and certainly that 41 million for you know washington dallas Obviously, out of home viewing plays an enormous role in that. Forty-one percent of the audience was out of home. If you take out the out of home audience and it's just the same kind of number we were looking at back in 2016, it's lower. It's lower than a lot of years. Uh, you know, there's a lot with ratings that will necessarily be, I would say, somewhat misleading if you don't have the right context. And I, I definitely think that's a factor. But even even in the old days, even before the internet. You would. I remember when the Spurs and Pistons played in the finals. The ratings weren't any good, and on the cover of Sports Illustrated, they, you know, it was uh, something, you know, Spurs Pistons, you know, goes seven, something like that. And this is the cover. And in parentheses, they have, but America didn't watch. Did the NBA learn anything? Right. And I mean, what was the NBA going to do? You know, it's like, the NBA was going to let the Spurs in the finals anymore. Well, you know. what did the NBA do? Look at the look at the scores now. You know, they they did. Well, that's true. Yeah, they, they and that and that is and that is an actual thing. Though I do find it funny when like the you know the Rangers made the World Series. I mean, what are you going to say? Keep them out? You know? And they said, well, the playoffs are well, they had the same record as the Astros. They just you know lost the tiebreaker. So if they'd won one more game, then the ratings would have been no, it would have been the same same thing. 
And again, I'm not, I'm, I'm one of these people that literally any topic under the sun could potentially be interesting to me if it's explained correctly. But I don't like it when there's no context. And I also don't like it when we equate popularity with quality, which happens in movies all the time, right? Something made 150 million. Well, if the movie's stunk, then isn't they're not paying me. You know, it costs me the same amount to buy a ticket. So what do I care? Brian, this is maybe a bit of a, uh, you know, more um, question of personal interest to me because I hear you mention um, college football message boards a lot. And this time of year, uh, <laughs> this time of year, you know, those can get quite exciting with the coaching carousel and all of that. Uh, I just want to see if you think, you know, college football message boards or that type of environment online is kind of overlooked by media observers as kind of shaping the perspective of fans. Because I think, especially when you look at like, you know, let's say the 55 plus the 60 plus demo, that's where they're getting a lot of their information about, you know, their favorite teams and can kind of really drive the narrative. Um, you know, I know you frequent some message boards. I do as well. It's, you know, it's pretty entertaining this time of year. It's okay to admit it. We uh, to to admit you have a message board subscription or even multiple ones. It's funny because they see now that they almost seem a little outdated. You know, I think like anybody younger than me is probably just on is mostly on Twitter and like finding that stuff through social media. But in the time, they were really incredible and they put a lot of pressure. We talk about traditional media. It was horrible for traditional media because first of all, the business of recruiting, which had been covered by local newspapers, got taken away. And then you went to all these college football fans, all of whom are nuts, and I know because I'm one of them, and said, oh, instead of reading a newspaper, which is going to be trying to cover this down the middle, we're going to give you a website where most of the time it's going to be done from a perspective of your school. We're all fans here. Now, we're going to be critical if the team's bad, but we're all fans here. Well, who's going to win that fight? The newspaper who's trying to do this, you know, traditional standard and approach of journalism or the website, college football website? The other thing about that is, and this is maybe taking a little farther than you want, but it's like, I, the, when I started reading those and then the way our politics changed, I was like, oh, you know what this reminds me of? Message boards. This is my team. My team is good. Your team is bad. Anything your team does is going to be scandalous and evil. Anything my team does is going to be great. Because I just saw that. And I was remember just even as a consumer would read these and be like, you can't be serious, people. Right. Universe, I'm a University of Texas guy. You can't think that we have the market cornered on, you know, goodness and light and, and the right approach to everything. Surely not. But that's how people think. And now it, we see in the world and politics and culture, they think that thing about a lot of ways. Everything is about team. What team are you on? And that was the first place I ever really encountered that. Yeah, you, I think bringing it to politics is actually really interesting because if you actually do frequent these uh, message boards, you know, you always hear, the, you know, po political scientists, political pundits and whatnot talk about, you know, the median voter, like who you're trying to, you know, get to you know, vote for your candidate in an election, right? Um, or at least appeal to. I, I think a lot in a lot of ways you can find how kind of a large swath of America thinks. <laughs> Uh, just by reading how they feel about their favorite school. Oh, I definitely think so. And by the way, also in terms of media, I think just the way they talked about mainstream media figures on those boards, the way, you know, every Kirk Herbstreet, every game day person, every ESPN person was out to get them and their team. 
again, that was the first place I saw the media really talked about like that. You know, we never forget, right? Because you said something seven years ago on game day, and this this is what you really think. You've been hiding it all this time, but this you've got an agenda against my team, right? You're biased. And again, a lot of the world's like that now. Uh, everyone has a victim complex there everyone's deluded in certain ways yeah and the media is it cannot possibly be people just trying to do a good job it's people that are you know enacting an agenda one way or the other very interesting you know on that political discussion we have an election year coming up last couple of election years have been absolutely disastrous for sports Uh, obviously 2020 for a lot of reasons but also competing with the trump election and also 2016 not just competing with the Trump election, but, well, I guess in both 2016 and 20, being a direct target of Trump. What do you think the sports world can do, if anything, to avoid getting caught up in the Trump hurricane in 2024? I'm not sure that's possible. It's, a, it's an interesting question. You know, we, we may be able to look at, you know, certain institutions, certain media institutions, or, or certain, um, you know, leagues that have handled it in a particular way, and they've been able to slide around the direct confrontation that we saw, you know, back in 2016 and then again in 2020. But I'm not really sure it's possible anymore because it's just, you know, Trump, you know, Trump would make statements about athletes. Trump Trump had opinions about, it wasn't just whatever you thought of him. He was actively antagonizing, uh, and that's a nice word for it, certain athletes. You know, it's like I was remembering the other day because somebody was asking me about Jamel Hill that Sarah Huckabee Sanders made a statement about Jamel Hill from the White House. Just think about that. Think how just just mind-blowing that it is that that happened. And I don't see any scenario where he's running for president or is reelected in 2024 where sports somehow stays free of that force field. I just don't. Do you think Trump will basically pick fights and, uh, you know, obviously the athletes will be asked about it and that'll create a news cycle? Or do you think there needs to be an inciting incident as there was with all of the police shootings in 2016? There was just a spate of them. Uh, And then obviously, remember the man in Dallas who then killed five police officers. That was a much more intense year than I think a lot of people remember because of 2020. And then obviously George Floyd in 2020. Does there need to be that inciting incident or will Trump just create it? Um, I mean, if I had to guess, I would I would just lean toward he will find something. And also, by the way, that athletes might want to just talk about it without having to be, you know, without having been some kind of incident or provocation. You know, the idea that Trump's running president, they may, they may have opinions about that and, and share those opinions on social media. I can absolutely see that happen. It's funny because I also think it's a little bit early. You know, right now we're still in this very hypothetical part of the of the campaign, even though it feels like it's going to be Trump versus Biden, minus you know some very strange turn of events in in Iowa and New Hampshire and beyond. But it's hard, I think, to kind of piece out how much this is going to occupy our lives. But I would, if I had to guess, I would lean toward a lot of our lives and a lot of our attempts. One more on this subject, and I'll, I'll kick it back to Drew. Uh, you know, Ethan Strauss the other day wrote an article arguing that the culture war has died in sports. Um, and and I'm very curious about that idea. Uh, do you find in any way that there's some truth to that, that the, the, the culture war of 2020, all the things that fans talk about when they're saying that sports is woke and all these other things, 
Do you find that that's died down or is it just that times have kind of shifted into a different uh, uh, storyline? That's a really interesting question because you do still see messages behind the end zones if I'm remembering the last couple of weeks of football correctly, right? You know, somebody scores a touchdown and and those would were, you know, at one point in history, so just jolting because we'd never really seen anything like that, you know, officially on an NFL field. So I think sometimes in some ways we've gotten used to it a little bit more. You know, we, we'd been through when the period of athlete activism began now, and I don't know when you want to trace that to, but, you know, sometime right in the last eight years, seven years, something like that, right? I think we, at least in, in terms of intensifying. Um, We've been through a period where there just had not been a ton of high-profile athlete activism. So for a lot of people, it was very, very bracing. And even people that were, you know, probably sympathetic to it. It was just very, very different part of their lives. Um, and then, of course, to see the leagues weighing in and, and the NBA and the NFL. So maybe maybe it's that the level of it hasn't dropped as much as we think. We're just getting used to it. We have We have sort of, you know, our brains have switched on and switched to a different place and we're like okay we understand now that this there's going to be some of this out in the universe and um that's just yeah so i don't know but it's a really good question if you i don't wouldn't quite know how to measure it but but that would be my inclination i would say the difference between where you know the difference between what it all was at the start which was t-shirts you know kobe bryant lebron derrick rose wearing the i can't breathe shirts the uh, the hands up, don't shoot by the Rams when they were still in St. Louis, right next to uh, Michael Brown and all that. Somehow there wasn't there was backlash to that, but it wasn't. I mean, Trump wasn't around. Right. So yeah. there was backlash to it, but it wasn't that crazy. But then you flash forward about six years and you have Black Lives Matter on the court of an NBA game. And I think maybe the demarcation line is when the leagues were doing it. Now, you, as you say, they do have the messages in the back of the end zone in the NFL, but outside of a few end racism messages, which are still pretty generic, like end racism is a message that, you know, is pretty accepted. Um, some of these are just like, it takes all of us, which sounds like, you know, something to fight athlete's foot or something. It doesn't sound like something to fight racism. But, you know, all of these things that are league official the NFL is not doing them to the same level as Black Lives Matter on the court. So that to me might be that and the kneeling would have been maybe what Ethan Strauss is getting at. Yeah. And I haven't, I haven't got a chance to read his piece yet, so I don't quite, I don't totally know what he cites as evidence. I was always struck during the periods we're talking about, if you flipped on Fox News or conservative media, how much of it was about this stuff. And I think escaping the eyes of a lot of people who might not watch that stuff uh, all the time. And I certainly am not somebody who watches that all the time. But when I would watch, I'd be like, oh, wow, they're talking about LeBron tonight. They're talking about the NBA. You'd, you'd sort of, um, you know, sort of look at a random congressional race somewhere and be like, oh, wow, there there's pictures of kneeling football players on the flyers that are going out in the mail. Like this has fully been absorbed as a political issue. And that was just always striking to me yeah. during that time. So uh, funnily enough, Brian, uh, Ethan actually linked to one of your articles uh, from early in the Trump administration uh, in his piece titled Sports Writing Has Become a Liberal Profession. Here's how it happened. Yeah. Uh, not, yeah. You remember that one? I do. 
he kind of posits that uh, the media, the sports media is no longer vocally liberal. They've kind of retracted back um, in their stances, uh, haven't been as outwardly, um, you know, using liberal messaging in their in their content. Um, do you think that, you know, this will like kind of change as we get closer to the election that you know the media the sports media not maybe not the leagues maybe not the players but the media will actually uh, lean more into its uh, liberal leanings um again it might you know i think it's again i just think joe biden's been the president now for three years and i think it's very hard for us to wrap our mind around it's 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 uh, it might be hard to wrap our minds around but it would be striking to go back and remember what it was like when he was not the president and how charged everything was. And I think, you know, when I wrote that article, if I'm remembering correctly, old Deadspin was still very much a functioning thing. And they played a huge role in pushing uh, sports writers, you know, out of uh, a stance that many of them occupied during the newspaper, which is like, I don't want to touch that stuff. Or, you know, I will do it, but I'll do it in a very select, you know, I'll, I'll say something, but you know what, the rest of the year, balls and strikes <laughs> out. And I think Deadspin was a very, very big part of that uh, at that time. And so I don't know if, you know, they're, them not being the old Deadspin anymore has something to do with that, but it's a very interesting idea. I think you actually used that exact phrase in the article, uh, the balls and strikes thing. <laughs> oh, look at that. Yeah. <laughs> you brought up Deadspin. Uh, very interesting the way things go with uh, websites like that. Uh, they they have a certain shelf life and then they kind of disappear. And uh, beyond, I mean, really a lot of those ex-Gawker sites, uh, it gets back to the question from the beginning, kind of just what the future is for media. And uh, for tying it into the political discussion, as you start to have some of these sites go away, is does that necessarily create a political neutrality, a balls and strikes, just by virtue of all of that left-leaning millennial energy being snuffed out uh, rather effectively uh, by private equity. You know, that's a, it's so. So the question really there is: we're thinking there is the energy and the potential to be politically engaged, but how much of it is driven by websites like that? Are you saying that? And you're saying in the in the world, not among journalists particularly, but just in the world. No, I'm talking. I'm talking specifically about: can you have the same kind of political atmosphere that we had, where there was an intense pressure? Every single institution, every single celebrity. If you don't weigh in, you're this or that. I find that if you don't have, you know, the websites that incite that kind of mindset, perhaps that. It's just not going to happen. Maybe that might be a factor. The media is just plainly different than it was in 2014 and 20, certainly 2020. It's different. Those social media is also built out, right? And we could see that we can see sometimes see those campaigns. They may be a little more diffuse, um, but social media obviously plays a plays a role in this too. I, it's a really fascinating question. I don't have a great answer for you, um, but I will just say in the, our little world of sports writing, it does feel different. Yeah. When Deadspin was not only in its old, I know those guys have gone off and uh, done, you know, done quite well uh, in their new place. But and you know, the old Deadspin, which was not only, you know, very you know political website in many ways, but also was just really really big, right? Just occupied a huge big role in everybody's consciousness day to day. It was, it was your just daily blog to read, you know, about what happened in sports. And I just think the world's the world feels different to me 
anyway uh after that period yeah you're absolutely right as far as social media goes twitter x elon musk i mean i feel like that's going much the same way uh we're five years from now there's no way elon musk run twitter slash x is still in operation that's my marker five <laughs> years i mean am i wrong your fearless prediction well i don't know um it doesn't feel like it's gonna it doesn't feel like it's gonna last yeah um you know will you mean so he could but he could also potentially sell it though i guess that would might be a ruinous sort of sale right given how much he paid for it um but no it's a, it's an interesting question i've been we've been talking a lot of press box and again here's something i don't, don't have a great answer for is what journalists sort of do in a time like this you know because we've seen a lot of journalists say oh find me on blue sky find me on threads I, i'm gone but i'm so fascinated by the what at what point everybody decides to leave because you know long before elon musk on twitter they were you know there was a great amount of energy expended in building up your following that's what people were doing and you know i saw somebody the other day said well i'm on now that I have 50,000 followers on threads, I'm leaving. Oh, well, that was that the, <laughs> so that the point was, I just need to have that many people following me somewhere else. And now I feel free to go. Mm -hmm. um, I'm always, I'm always just very, very interested in how every, and I don't I'm not saying there's a right and wrong answer here, but in how every journalist makes that decision. All right. Hey, Brian, thank you so much for going overtime with us. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Could talk to you for another hour, obviously, about all sorts of things. I've got a lot of political questions, quite a few, but this is a sports podcast. We stick to sports here. So, Good. you know, we'll, we'll, we'll meet up during the campaign and, you know, throw yes. a few of those to the side door. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much. All right. Great talking to Brian Curtis. We'll hopefully have him back again one of these days, but let's go ahead and wrap up the conversation with a few quick hits. We'll start with ESPN and TNT joining their broadcast teams together for the NBA in-season tournament semifinals. That's a week from Thursday. Reggie Miller will uh, join ESPN's game uh, with Mike Breen and Doris Burke. And Doc Rivers will join the TNT crew of Kevin Harlan, his old partner at TNT in the 1990s, and Candace Parker. It'll also be a day that features EJ Henning and Charles in a segment on NBA Countdown, and then Stephen A. and Mike Wilbon in a segment on Inside the NBA. What does this all mean? It means the NBA wants you to watch the in-season tournament. You're going to stop at nothing to try to make, you know, to pique your interest. That's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah, EJ, e Kenny, and Charles going over to NBA Countdown is probably, you know, equivalent to Brian Curtis coming on the Sports Media Watch podcast. Well, I'm not going <laughs> to insult this podcast like that. I will say it's the equivalent of when the different Strokes characters would appear on Hello, Larry which was a far, uh, far inferior show. Hello, Larry. I don't even know who was on. Oh, I have a commenter who has the name Hello, Larry. And I'm amazed anybody remembers that show. Uh, but yes, uh, that's, that's what it is the equivalent of. I think we all know NBA Countdown is going to be, uh, uh, you know. Well, what would be funny here, John, is if, uh, if this is like the highest rated NBA yeah. Countdown of all yeah. time or something like that, or has well, some know, great superlative. From the ratings perspective, it's not like ESPN. I mean, ESPN and TNT do a totally different thing. TNT is the post game. ESPN is the pre game. So it, it's hard to compare. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see. I'd love to see some intermingling between the, the two casts. Yes. I, I'd love to see Stephen A and Wilbon and, and Chuck on the same panel, because I think that would be really interesting. 
Well, uh, as long as the TNT portion is done by the TNT guys behind the scenes, because they're as, they're, they are as important. The cast are the same, but you switched out the behind the scenes folks. And I mean, it you'll be surprised because the, the EJ, Kenny, and Charles aren't going to be the same people working in an, in, a, in an ESPN studio. Yeah. Yeah. You're certainly right about that. Uh, all right, John, for me, uh, my one quick hit of the day. Uh, this is this is a holy day on the golf calendar uh, the last few years. The day where Tiger Woods holds his annual press conference in the Bahamas where he gets everyone excited about his return or imminent return from an injury. Uh, Tiger said he was going to play potentially one tournament every month in the upcoming season. He is going to play this week at his own tournament in the Bahamas. Uh, so big day in the golf world. I'm always very envious of all of the reporters who get the assignment of going to the Bahamas to attend Tiger Woods's press conference. So shout out to all those golf writers. Um, you have it made. One tournament, one tournament a month would be amazing, but you know, 2020 or actually 2019 is a really long time ago. It's going on five years since Tiger won that Masters. It has been five years since he won the uh, the Tour Championship, and that really cemented his return. Five years is a long time. It is. And the difference between how old is Tiger now? Tiger is going on 47. I'm sorry, Tiger is going on 48. Tiger is 47 going on 48. 43 and 48 are different. They're, they're just different the same way that 30 and 34 are different. Uh, and they're mostly the same. But when we're talking about a superstar athlete, the decline from 43 to 48 with a car accident and nearly you know, causes you to lose your foot in between, uh, that's what are we asking for here? I'd love to see Tiger get back to the way things were, even as recently as just 2019. But that's not going to happen. All right, another great podcast, or at least I hope it was. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back next week with more sports media talk. Thanks for joining us. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.